Good evening. It's a joy to see each one of you. Thank you for coming out on a Friday night. And our topic for this weekend, I titled it Fighting Fear from Philippians, which is, yes, I like alliteration. I do. And so we are going to be talking about fighting fear. I don't know if you have heard, a lot of studies have been done that show fear and anxiety and worry are on the rise. Uh, this is something that a lot of people are struggling with. And I think maybe in particular, a lot of women are struggling with. So I think it's appropriate for us this, this uh, weekend, tonight and in the morning, to think about this topic of fear and anxiety and worry and think a little bit about why it's on the rise and what we can do to do battle with it, to fight against this. Because we know that being fearful and being anxious doesn't honor the Lord. It's not the way that he wants us to live. So we'll be talking about these things and trying to, to get at the heart of some of our worry and some of our anxiety. Now, I used to be a world-class worrier. I was A1 worried all the time. I can remember worrying about something, and then when that event was over with, I would just automatically think, okay, now what am I going to worry about? It was just on to the next thing. Maybe some of you relate. I was thinking about this today. One of the ways that I used to um, worry was to think about the worst possible thing that could happen and then be prepared for that. So that I, I was always thinking, what is the worst thing that could happen? When my husband started traveling more for his, his job, I would think, you know, maybe something is going to happen to him. Maybe he won't come back. That was the worst thing that I could imagine. And so I would think about, what, what would that be like? What would happen? I could imagine that in the middle of the night, the doorbell would ring and there would be a policeman on the door to tell me that the plane had crashed. I have no idea if that's the way it would happen, but that's what I thought it would be. And I would just think through, okay, how am I going to respond? What am I going to say to the policeman? What am I going to do? Who am I going to call first? And then what, what am I going to do with my daughters? Where will we move? What kind of job will I get? I would just think through every detail that I could possibly come up with about the worst possible thing that could happen. And that was how I kind of worried. I carried out this, this worrying. And maybe, maybe some of you relate to that. Now, one thing I want to clarify as we begin is that worry and fear and anxiety are not always necessarily sinful. Sometimes our fear is kind of an, an alarm that we need to think carefully about something. We need to measure the risk. We need to be careful or cautious. It can be closely related to common sense. But I, I think a lot of our worry, a lot of our fear, actually is sin. And we don't really like to call it that. We use other terms, other ways of thinking about it, such as saying, well... I'm just a people pleaser, rather than admitting we really are fearing man, living in that, that sinful mindset. We might say, oh, I'm feeling overwhelmed, rather than admitting that we are just not trusting the Lord with whatever it is that we're facing. We might say, oh, I'm a realist. I'm a realist. I'm looking at things realistically, rather than saying, I think I know better than God and that I'm, I'm giving into pride. So don't you see that in yourself, just ways that we justify our fear and we justify our anxiety. Now, I've been reading a lot about fear and anxiety um, to prepare for this weekend. And several of the sources that I read said that the most common command in the Bible... Hopefully this will work. The most common command in the Bible is do not fear. Do not be anxious. That's the most common command. And so we can learn at least two things from that fact. One is 
God knows our frailty. He knows our weakness. He knows our tendency to be fearful. Isn't that just like the Lord? He knows us, and he's so tender toward us. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is our God. He knows us. He knows how frail we are. But secondly, we can learn from the fact that this is such a common command in Scripture that God really does not want us to be fearful. He wants us to grow in battling our fears and our, our worries and our anxieties. He wants us to get better at managing them. He wants us to think rightly about them. So when we're feeling fearful and afraid and, and anxious, we need to drill down in our hearts and figure out what it is that we're thinking that we ought not to be thinking. What is it that is manifesting this fear within us? Another text that I think is so helpful as we begin, 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. Now, notice a couple of things. One way we grow in humility, we're to humble ourselves. One way we grow in humility is by casting our anxieties on the Lord. That seems to indicate that at least some of our fear, some of our anxiety is rooted in our pride. And also, we can and should cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. So realize the truth of God's heart for you. He cares for you. He loves you. And he doesn't want you to be anxious. Now, our main focus tonight and in the morning is going to be on the book of Philippians. And I, I trust that uh, you're familiar with the book of Philippians. It's probably one of our favorite Bible books, one that we are, are familiar with. We'll also be looking at a lot of other key texts. It's so funny. The Lord is just so kind. I have found over the last couple of months Wherever I'm reading in my Bible, there's something about fear and worry and anxiety. So we're going to be looking at a lot of texts. Also, a lot of books that I've been reading have things that are just so helpful. We're going to be sharing some quotes as well. Now, when we think of Philippians, we usually think of the word joy, right? That's a common theme, a word that we read. And that's appropriate. It's a theme. And Philippians was written in this context of uh, instructing us to cultivate joy. But cultivating joy and battling fear are kind of two sides of the same coin, aren't they? There were some difficult things going on for the, the believers in Philippi, things that were tempting them to be fearful and anxious. Apparently, they were undergoing some kind of persecution, as we read at the end of chapter 1. They were dealing with some false teaching in their midst, as we read in chapter 3, and there was conflict among the believers in the church, as we read in chapter 4. And in, in addition to all this, their beloved Paul was in prison. And from prison, he wrote these new believers, and he was discipling them. He did not want them to be fearful, and he, or the Holy Spirit guiding Paul's words, doesn't want us to be fear fearful. So let's look carefully at this familiar book and think about fear. The verse that I chose as our key verse is Philippians 1, 27 and 28. If you want to turn there, Philippians 1, 27 and 28, where we read, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or in, am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit 
with one mind striving side to side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So there's several things in this verse. We won't take time to point out everything, but notice one way that our manner of life is to be worthy of the gospel of Christ is that we're not frightened in anything by our opponents. In this first session, we're going to look at a few indicatives from the book of Philippians. Indicatives are statements that are true facts. Theologically, indicatives usually denote who we are in Christ. They state true facts about our standing in Christ. These are glorious, life-transforming truths, such as we are justified, we are adopted, we are reconciled, these glorious truths. We're going to look at five key indicatives that are found in Philippians, five facts about who we are in Christ. We'll talk about the significance of each one and then look at a principle from each one that helps us battle our fear. In our session tomorrow morning, the first session, then we'll look at a number of imperatives or commands from the book of Philippians and also from some other texts that will give us focus as we engage in this battle with our fear. And then in our last session tomorrow morning, we will think about implications for living this out that our manner of life may indeed be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But first, let me take a minute and review the gospel with you. These indicatives, these statements of true facts about who we are in Christ are directed to people who are trusting in God alone for the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of eternal life. These glorious truths are applicable to people whom God has called to himself, people whom God has opened blind eyes and brought spiritual life to dead hearts. This is for those of us who believe that Christ died for our sins, that he rose again, demonstrating his power over sin and death. It is for people who have turned away from trusting ourselves and our own feeble efforts to do good and to be good and are trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. So if that's your heart tonight, then these indicatives are true of you. So I I hope you'll find them encouraging. All right, five indicatives. Number one, you are being conformed to the image of Christ. You are being conformed to the image of Christ If you are a believer in Christ, you are one to whom God has committed himself to conform to the image of Christ. Isn't that remarkable? God himself is committed to make each one of us more and more like his beloved son. And I think this has to do with those foundational fears, those kind of existential questions we have, like, Who am I? What is life all about? What's the purpose? What's the meaning? Why am I here? What is my purpose in life? Those foundational fears that could just beset us in the middle of the night. And this is so helpful to us. What really matters is that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Where do we see this in Philippians? Philippians 1.6, where we read, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God who began a good work in you will complete it. The work that God began when he redeemed you, when he called you by name, when he made you his own, this work of making you and me more and more like Christ, the outcome is assured. It's 100% guaranteed. Isn't that glorious? What hope, what sense of purpose that gives us. Then look at Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where we read, therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love this text. It is God who works in us, causing us to will or to want to please him, and then to be able to please him. God does the work, but we must be engaged in the work. Many years ago now, when we were living in Portland, Oregon, my husband used to walk up the hill to his job and walk back down the hill at the end of the day. And our two daughters were young and they would be playing out in the yard and they'd see daddy coming down the hill and they'd run up to greet him. And one time, Rachel was two years old and, and uh, Bruce picked her up and gave her a hug and set her back down and she said, Daddy, can I carry your briefcase home for you? And he knew his briefcase was full of heavy books. There was no way that she could pick it up, but he didn't want to discourage her. So he said, sure, Rachel, you could pick it up. So she reached down and tried to pick it up. She couldn't begin to move with this heavy suitcase. So she looked up and said, Daddy, could you hold me so I could hold your briefcase? He said, sure, Rachel. So he picked her up and she held the briefcase. I love that picture because that's the way we work because God works in us. God is holding us while we hold the briefcase. We work because God works. And this, this work that God is doing to make us more like Christ, we read that we are to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That phrase is so instructive to our topic, isn't it? As we think about the unbelief of sinful fear. You know, it's easy for us to focus on the, the compassion, the love, the closeness, the tender care that God our Father gives us. But we need to remember that there is more to God than just those attributes. We don't want to disregard his holiness and his justice, his self-sufficiency, his majesty. What a great God he is. And if we're thinking rightfully and biblically, kind of a, a full-orbed biblical view of God, we should rightly fear God, work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is a fear that comes from deep respect and reverence and submission. It's a holy fear. And as we grow in rightly fearing God, we are so helped in battling other fears. Don't you see that in your heart? God must loom larger in our minds and our hearts and our lives than anything else. And we'll be talking more about this in our last session tomorrow morning. But fear of the Lord really does help us grow in, in handling our other fears. So let's be reminded of the end result, this work that God is doing that's 100% guaranteed. Where are we headed? Rejoice in the truth of 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. You know, you may bear a striking resemblance to one of your parents. I look a lot like my dad. I have had people come up to me and say, you must be Barney McLean's girl. <laughs> yes, I am. And I'm thankful for that. I love my father. But oh, I long to look more and more like my heavenly father. And the day will come when we will see him and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. But this is the work that God is doing in us. First Thessalonians 5.28 talks about this more. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify you completely. Make you more like Christ. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Again, we can be so confident that God is doing this work in us. So let's remember a little bit more about this God who is working in us. God is wise. He knows exactly what to bring into our lives and what to withhold from our lives to make us more like Christ. He knows better than we do what we need. God is powerful. He is able to accomplish his good work in us and through us. And God is loving. All that he brings to us, he brings in love. So friends, we need to think rightly about our fears and about the things that tempt us to be fearful. We need to think rightly about the circumstances of our lives, the conflicts that we may be experiencing with other people, the things that tempt us to worry, the suffering, the hardship. We need to see these rightly as opportunities that exalt Christ as we choose to trust in him. And God is so faithful to bring along circumstances that expose ways in which we're tempted to trust in ourselves and to help us realize how desperately we need to trust in him. Elizabeth Elliot says, you'll see this on your handout, God will not protect you from anything that will make you more like Jesus. God brings into our lives whatever it is that he knows will make us more like Jesus. So we don't have to be fearful. We could trust him. So here's our principle for battling fear. Whatever happens in your life, you could be confident that God is at work doing what he knows is needed to make you more like Christ. That's the way we need to think about everything in our lives. Our purpose, our meaning, the challenges, whatever God does, he is making us more like Christ. Second indicative, you are a follower of Christ, a follower of Christ. Christ is many things to us. He's our savior, he's our redeemer, he's our friend, our fortress, our prophet, priest, and king. He's also our example. He left all comfort and convenience and security, trusting the will of his father for what he was called to do. While remaining fully God, he gave up many rights and privileges of deity, submitting himself to the father, even unto death on a cross. And I think this indicative helps us think about our fear that we often have of giving up control, giving up control. So let's look at this a little more. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, we see this example of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's think for a bit about what Christ did in the incarnation when he came to earth. He willingly left the blissful perfection of heaven, the sweet fellowship of the Trinity, he went from the highest height to the lowest depth. He gave up the rightful exercise of his deity and clothed himself in the limitations of humanity. And then he lived out his life on earth in submission to his father. He always obeyed the will of his father. He did what the father asked him to. He spoke as the father directed. He yielded control of himself to the father. I picked out just a couple of verses from the Gospel of John that demonstrate this. John 4, 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. His very food, what he ate, 
was to do the will of his Father. John 8, 28 and 29, we read, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And we are called to follow Christ's example, to live in submission, in obedience, in giving up control to our sovereign, reigning, heavenly Father who is with us. Something I regularly remind myself, God is God and I am not. God is God and I am not. God is in control. I am not. Now, I think that our fear sometimes, maybe frequently, is rooted in our proud desire to want to be in control. We think we know better than God. This goes right back to Eve in the garden. She believed Satan's temptation that if she disobeyed God, she could be like God, and that she would find blessing in disobeying God's clear command that she knew better. So we have to learn to examine our fears to find ways in which our thinking is false, ways in which we're seeking to control things, in which we're attempting to be the God of our lives. If we are worried, if we're just consumed with fear, we are in essence saying, God isn't wise, to wise enough to handle this, I know better, or God isn't powerful enough to take care of this, I have to try to handle it myself, or God doesn't love me enough to handle this, I can't trust him. That's what we're saying in our fear. David Paulison said this about worrying. Worriers act as if they might be able to control the uncontrollable. Central to worry is the illusion that we can control things. Anxiety and control are two sides of one coin. When we can't control something, we worry about it. <laughs> Don't you see that? I see that in my heart. I want to control things. I want to plan things. I want to know what's going to happen. I want to make sure those things happen. And if I don't feel like I'm in control, I am tempted to worry and be anxious. Now, Paul, in uh, Philippians 3, he just provides another helpful illustration of our human desire to be in control. In Philippians 3, verse 3, we read, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then Paul goes on to describe the many ways in which he, by human standards, put confidence in the flesh. He was in control of things, wasn't he? But then read verses 7 to 9 of Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So notice the contrast here for Paul. Either we trust in ourselves, our accomplishments, our position, our control, being in control of everything, trying to manage, or we trust in the righteousness from God that depends on faith. As we grow as Christians, by God's grace, we will be weaning ourselves away from seeking our own control, our own sense of ruling over things, of being in charge. And we will learn more and more to bow our knees in submission to our Heavenly Father. We will be seeking to yield control of our lives 
to the one whom we worship. And this will have a huge impact on the way that we battle our fear and our worry and our anxiety. God is worth trusting in. He's reliable. We can depend upon him. We can yield up our attempts to have control and yield ourselves to his perfect, wise control. So our principle for battling fear is, as you trust the Lord and submit to his wise and sovereign control, you can be less controlled by fear. All right, number three. You are God's child under his provision. God assures us that he will provide all that he knows we need. And this has to do with a fear of lack of provision. In Philippians 4, verses 11 to 13, Paul talks about learning in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So we can be so encouraged by Paul's example. He has learned to be content, to trust God's provision. This is a process for all of us, to learn to trust God, to meet our needs. And he so wisely, regularly brings new circumstances and situations in which we continue to learn. Learning to trust God's provision must be based on his character, his sovereignty, his wisdom. He knows better than we do what we need, and he is able to provide what we need. He is self-sufficient, and he has all that we need within himself. I'm reminded of Luke eleven thirteen, where we read, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We parents want to give good gifts to our children. Our Heavenly Father knows infinitely more about what is truly good what we truly need, and he is able to provide it. So I have a quote here on your handout I want to read to you from Phil Riken's book, Kingdom Come, that I think is really helpful as we think about God's provision for us and how we don't have to be afraid. He writes, People who seek the kingdom of God and who therefore pray in faith for its coming are set free from anxiety to live with generosity how unnecessary it is, indeed how absurd it is, for us to be anxious about things that God has promised to provide. Worry gains us nothing, and therefore we are anxious for nothing. In fact, anxiety always subtracts. Worry is a thief. It steals our time. Our thoughts turn to our troubles, and then rather than praying about them or doing the things that God is calling us to do, we waste time worrying about them. Worry steals our rest. Do I get an amen on that? Oftentimes, we worry so much in the middle of the night. Isn't it interesting how things look so bleak in the middle of the night? We lie awake at night, anxious about tomorrow, and then we get up too tired to work hard, and this only adds to our anxiety. Worry steals our obedience as it tempts us to other sins like irritability, addiction, and laziness, or, on the other hand, overwork. Worry stills our hope as we fear the worst about the future. All kinds of difficulties arise in our minds, most of which will never come to pass. What a sad waste it all is. Worry shrivels the soul, robbing our joy, leaving us ill-equipped to face the spiritual and emotional challenges of each new day. Few things are as discouraging to our spirit or as destructive to our contentment or as detrimental to our witness as the anxious worries of the troubled heart. Jesus tells us not to be afraid, but to seek his kingdom, sell our possessions, and give to the needy. 
When the kingdom comes first for us, we are liberated from the grasping pursuit of temporary things. We do not have to worry about what we need anymore so we can give to others instead. Oh, isn't that helpful instruction? I just find that so good for my soul. It's a quote that I want to return to again and again. So a principle for battling fear is God calls you to, to learn to trust his higher, wiser ways and to know that he will provide what you truly need. He knows better than we do what we need. And God is the giver of good gifts. But we need to remember that God defines good. It might not necessarily be what we think of as good, but God knows better than we do. All right, number four, you are a recipient of grace. A recipient of grace. God has given us grace to believe in Christ and, if necessary, to face affliction and suffering with strength and confidence in him. So this indicative helps us as we think about our fear of suffering, our fear of suffering. Philippians 1.29, again, is so helpful. We read, therefore, it has been granted or graced. Charis is the, the Greek word there. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffer for his sake. Oh, how we have to think carefully and rightly and truthfully about this. God graces us with suffering. He gives us suffering that makes us grow. Philippians 3, 10 and 11, we read that I may know him the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Our suffering connects us to Christ in a profound way. He suffered for us, and we suffer for him. It makes us more like him. The verses we read a moment ago about contentment and getting along in, in uh, different circumstances, Paul writes both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yes, we can trust God to meet our needs, but he doesn't always provide all that we want. He knows better than we do what we need, and he may know that we need to do without to suffer need in order to grow in trusting him. A few additional texts I want to mention. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Look at that again. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. When we think about experiencing that kind of situation, I don't think we automatically go to the next phrase, rejoice and be glad, right? We're fearful of that kind of suffering. Someone recently said that in other cultures, Christians are afraid of a raised fist. In our culture, we're afraid of a raised eyebrow. And I, I, that's true. At least it has been true. Now, things could be changing. We may be looking at more profound suffering here in this culture. But all of it, is designed by our good God to grow us, to make us more like Christ. We don't have to be afraid of suffering. We can trust him to provide what we need when we need it. Another verse I want to mention, James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when, 
not if, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perhaps you are suffering right now, going through a very difficult trial. Perhaps you're worried about an upcoming trial or the possibility of future suffering. When we experience suffering, how should we respond? There are two general ways to respond. One is the way of fear, wanting God to change the circumstances. And the second is the way of faith, wanting God to change me through the circumstances to do a good work in me. Now, of course, if we are suffering, we can and should ask God to relieve the suffering. He's our loving Heavenly Father, and he invites us to pour out our hearts to him. But we ask with a submissive spirit, recognizing that he knows better than I do what I need. I want to share this quote from David Paulison. He says, walking into suffering with eyes wide open, here it comes, we see it, we're walking into it, and not running after escapist pleasures opens the door to knowing the love of God. So let's determine when the suffering comes that we walk into it with eyes wide open, eyes firmly fixed on our loving Father, and not running after escapist pleasures. You might jot that phrase down, escapist pleasures. What are your escapist pleasures? Where are you tempted to run when you are facing some suffering? Here is a great verse to memorize with your children. Psalm 56, verse 3. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I love that, the simplicity of this. When I am afraid, when I am suffering, when that horrible thing happens, I put my trust in you. Listen to these words from Spurgeon. This is on your handout as well. He will never put us in the furnace unless he intends to purge our dross. And the furnace will not be one degree warmer than is absolutely necessary. Take heart. What difference does it make if our accommodations are sparse, if the passage is rough, if the winds are boisterous? There is a kingdom ahead. Make the best of this voyage. Do not be faint-hearted, but sing. And I love that description that the suffering that God brings into our lives it will never be one degree hotter than it needs to be to burn away the dross of our unbelief and our lack of faith. In my, oh, I'm not going to take time. Okay, principle for battling fear. God gives grace for all things for faith in him and for suffering in whatever he designs. You can trust him for today and for tomorrow. He will give the grace he knows we need, no matter what. And then our fifth indicative, you are his forever. You are his forever. The certainty of being with Christ surpasses anything in this life giving confidence that death does not end life at its best, but rather it is a passageway to a far superior life. So here we're talking about fear of death, fear of death, which I think is a common fear. Let's look at a couple of verses in Philippians. Philippians 1, 21 to 23. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. 
Philippians 3, 13 and 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And Philippians 3, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Oh, we need constant recalibration of our minds and our hearts to value the things of eternity, the things that are not seen but are far more real, far more true than the things of this world. Our fears can often revolve around death, maybe our own or our spouse, our children, our parents, friends. In our finite humanity, death can seem frightening. But in Paul's perspective, and certainly in God's perspective, death is not something to fear. All of us will die unless the Lord returns first, and all of us will die at precisely the moment ordained by God. When our daughter Bethany first got her driver's license, and I was tempted to be worried, you know, as we mothers are, and she just said to me, Mom, you know I'm going to die at exactly the moment that God has ordained. And no matter how I drive, if I'm careful, I'm not going to live any longer. And if I'm reckless, I'm not going to live any shorter. It's really all up to God. And I was like, oh, she's been listening to us. That's, yeah, so... She got me on that one. But it's so true, isn't it? We will all die at precisely the moment God has ordained. We don't have to be fearful of that. I love the practicality of Matthew 6, 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It doesn't do any good to worry about it, right? And then Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That reminds me of the words in Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And we are citizens of that kingdom kingdom, the kingdom that lasts forever. Yeah, the body they may kill. Oh, well. We're, we're going to be with our Lord forever and ever. When we're fearing death, we're not thinking truthfully and biblically. God has met our deepest need. He has granted to those of us who are trusting in Christ the certain promise of eternal life with him. Whatever happens here on earth, However we enter into eternity, we can trust him to do what is right, and then there is heaven. Eternity with God forever, without sin forever, increasing in joy and praise forever. I have a long quote there on your handout you can read later from Kevin DeYoung that is so helpful. No matter how long we live, the Lord willed it. How often do we think about heaven? How often do we encourage other believers with this certain hope? How often do we reflect on the fact that we will be in the presence of the Lord forever? Romans 8.18 reminds us, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I think that's the only time when comparing is mentioned in a positive way. You know, we're, we're not to compare ourselves with others. This is quite, I, I won't even go there. That We could spend too much time there. I'm sorry. But I think that's so interesting. We are not to compare what, what is happening here on earth, no matter how hard it is, with the glories and the beauty and the certainty of what we have in heaven. All of this will fade so quickly. One of my favorite quotes is, death ends a wicked, no, death begins a wicked man's hell, 
but it ends a godly man's hell. Death begins a wicked man's hell, but it ends a godly man's hell. Isn't that so true? Even if your life is so difficult here on earth, you're suffering, it will be over and then there will be forever with the Lord and all of this will fade. It's not worth comparing. So our principle for battling fear, no matter what happens in your life, including the way it ends, your eternal and ultimate destiny is secure in Christ. The things of this world, whether pleasurable or difficult, are temporal and short-term. This is something that I've noticed about getting older, and I love it. I'm calling it the equilibrium that comes with aging. I, I enjoy life. I enjoy gifts from God's hand, but I don't get quite so oh, about it, and I don't get so devastated by the hard things. There's just kind of an equilibrium, an evening out of things, because eternity is right there. We're almost there. And so the things of this world just really do fade in their importance, in, their, in the hardship, in the impact that they have on me. Sorry. So may God encourage each one of us as we reflect on these truths from the book of Philippians about who we are in Christ and about the confidence that that gives us to battle sinful fear and anxiety. Let us remember and rejoice in these facts. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. We are followers of Christ, walking in submission to God's, God's higher, wiser ways. We are God's children under his provision. We are recipients of grace no matter what suffering we experience. And we are his forever. May these true facts, these weighty truths, calm our minds and ground our souls that we may live less in fear and more in faith. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for these glorious truths from your word. We thank you that they are true, reliable, and dependable. And we thank you for the glimpses we have seen this evening of your character. Lord, help us trust and fear you, and fear everything else less. We pray by your grace, for your glory, and for our good, we pray. Amen.